for formality. It's because y'all don't want to see what's between here and here. Uh, so it's not good. You'll never be the same. Um, so today, as you know, we've been, uh, if you've been around, we've been going through the book of Acts. Okay? The book of Acts is basically a historical book. It's in the Bible. It's kind of toward the back in the New Testament. And it gives a historical account of about the first three decades of the church. It tells the story of like, okay, well, how did we get from Jesus to like Christians are gathering together and having community with one another. Uh, it documents that. And uh, one of the things we're going to see, okay, so there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And we're all the way to chapters, chapter 18. So we're pretty far along. Now uh, we're about 20 years in chronologically. And one of the things that we're going to see today is something that sounds very like religious, kind of like hyper spiritual. Uh, in our time, it sounds weird to us. We're going to see the appearance of idols. Okay, so what comes to your mind? Anybody think Indiana Jones? You'll be old enough to think Indiana Jones when I say, of course, right? Now, I'm assuming that you don't have like a wooden carving in your backyard that you bow down and worship. Uh, I'm assuming. You know what happens when you assume though. So, okay, maybe somebody does. But, uh, but the truth about idols is they still exist in our day. They just look a lot different in our culture. There are still primitive people groups in other parts of the world that maybe do have statues that they bow down to as a representation of, you know, some spiritual being. But idols look different, okay? So for us, an idol might be that thing you go to because it's the thing that you're really good at and you find your self-worth in it. Or it might be that thing that you just couldn't live without, or maybe that person where you find your security and confidence Idols look a lot different for us. Maybe it's financial security. Uh, maybe it's the approval of others. Okay? You, you kind of get the idea of how an idol might look in our day. It's the place we go to to find our self-worth, our meaning, our value, our happiness. Okay? So I just want to give you that for like, contextualization. Otherwise, it just go, you just read at chapters 18 to 19 and you're like, that was weird. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is, but... But the truth is, idols are still in existence in our own lives. Here's the practical problem with idols, okay? The problem is that they're not God, and at some point they will fail you. So let's just say you're a young person. We got a lot of beautiful, good-looking young people in this room, like pretty much everybody, really. And you spend hours a day in front of the mirror just getting yourself dialed in so that when you go out, everybody says, man... They got style, they look good, and that's like your security blanket, let's just say. None of you do this, but let's just say that that's, that's where you find your confidence and your value. What's eventually gonna happen, okay? Exhibit A, right here. You hang around long enough, gravity's gonna do its thing. Okay? Eventually your looks are gonna fail you. That's just a reality of the situation, okay? That's the problem with idols. They can't handle the weight of sitting in God's seat. That's the problem with them. Or for example, let's say you, put, you find your value in another person, maybe a spouse, we'll just say. That's a lot of pressure for that other person, isn't it? To be responsible for your happiness. I can't be happy unless you're happy with me. That's a lot of pressure. I think that's an unfair expectation to put on someone else. Eventually, idols always let us down. That's the problem with idols, okay? So spiritual things like idols are just as real now as they were before but they look different, okay? That was just the preliminary. I just wanted to get that, 
get that kind of out of the way there. Uh, Jessica, have you ever been offended by someone, but they were telling the truth? Yes. That ever happened to you? Oh, man. Back in the 90s, I had a bowl cut. A few of you knew me in the 90s, and you're like, yeah, that's, that's a real thing. It wasn't pretty, but a lot of people had them back in the 90s. Well, eventually, the 90s came to an end, and I was like, okay, I got to mix it up. I got I to gotta do something different. So I tried, I tried a different haircut. Now, I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but some of you will appreciate this. You remember on the show Friends, David Schwimmer, Ross, he had the haircut. It was like kind of short. It was like straight across the bangs right there. You remember that? I tried it out. And uh, yeah, well, okay, well, I mean, I'd like to think it was a step up, but like there's no really down to go from the bowl cut. So, uh, so here's the thing, though. Um, most of the people I knew were like, oh, I like the new haircut. Well, uh, about three days, so I got cut on the weekend. I went to work the next week, and one of my lifelong best friends, we work together. And he says to me, Did you get your money back? <laughs> I was like, for what? That haircut's awful. And I was like, I was kind of offended. Like, I was kind of hurt by it at first, right? Because he was just like jumping on me. He was just like, dude, that looks bad. You look awful right now. And I, like, my feelings were hurt, and I was like kind of a little bit angry that he was so like forward with it right there. But was he wrong? Not even a little bit. He was 100% wrong. He, he was, sorry, he was 100% right. The, the haircut was terrible. It was awful. I never went back to it. Uh, so, you know, I guess, I guess my point is like, sometimes we can get offended when somebody tells us the truth. We, and it's usually, or oftentimes it's more serious than a haircut, I should say. Uh, but this is what I've noticed about it. When we're offended by the truth, it produces this particularly irrational type of anger, right? Like, it wasn't rational for me to be angry about that. He was right, and he was telling me the truth, actually. He was probably actually being my friend by telling me the truth. But for me to be angry was, like, totally irrational, right? It was just an emotional reaction. And it's because we tend to find... Uh, we tend to define every issue in the light of what we want to be true. I didn't want my haircut to look bad. I didn't want my friend to say, you look terrible. And so I was, I was defining the issue in the light of what I wanted to be true. I wanted the new haircut to be a good haircut, and it wasn't, not even close. Okay, we do this in bigger ways, though, right? Like, if, if something's gone wrong and you want to shift the blame to someone else, you'll find a way. You'll find a reason, right? If you want to justify yourself, you'll find a way. The truth becomes irrelevant. We just become attached to the emotional part of it. Okay? We tend to be more emotional beings. Being offended by the truth creates this particularly irrational, crazy type of anger compared to other offenses. Like if I stomped on Brandy's foot just to be mean, she had surgery on her foot a while ago, and she was mad at me, that would be a rational type of anger, right? She would have a good reason for that. But when we're offended by the truth, we're just being crazy. Okay, we're, not, we're not in touch with reality. What we've seen in the last few chapters of Acts is that Paul is going around proclaiming the truth of the gospel. He's telling people, God loves you. God bless you, Garrett. God loves you, and he's made a way for you to know him by sending his son into the world to pay the bill for your sin. And when he does that, goes around to all these places, tells people about Jesus, and when he does that, some people receive it, but then there's others who all of a sudden burst out into this absurd form of anger. So for example, last week, chapter 17, Paul and his companion Silas, they come to a place called Thessalonica, and they start telling people, 
God loves you. He sent his son into the world to pay for your sins so that you could have a relationship with him, to bridge the gap between you. And the next thing you know, there's an angry mob outside of a guy named Jason's house because they can't find Paul. So they go to Jason's house, who's a Christian, and they drag Jason before what was their equivalent of the city council and accuse him of turning the world upside down. All for the heinous crime of believing that Jesus is the savior of the world. That seems like a bit of an overreaction, doesn't it? That seems like an irrational amount of anger for, for considering the message that they were bringing. So in Acts, we see this constant cycle of people being offended by the truth. And what they do is they try to stamp out the church. They try to stamp out the message of Jesus. But then their efforts actually only serve to spread the gospel even farther. It's further evidence that when God has decided, God has decided. We have the option to cooperate, but we're probably not going to be able to stop him. So we come to chapter 18. We're not really going to stop there. I just want to get to a particular section in chapter 19. So let me just tell you what happens in chapter 18. Uh, last week, Paul was in Athens, kind of, the, kind of the intellectual capital of the world. If it was in America, it would be like Boston or a place like Oxford or something like that in the modern day. Uh, he's been in Athens, and now he's left there, and he's gone to a city called Corinth, really prominent city in the Roman Empire. And when he's there, he meets this brilliant husband and wife missionary team. They, they're, they're Christians, and they've just decided, we're going to go out and tell people about Jesus. Their names are Priscilla and Aquila. No joke. That's cute, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila. He, he goes there, he meets them, and they go around Corinth telling people about Jesus. Now, here's one thing that you'll find interesting. The reason that Priscilla and Aquila came to Corinth is because, chapter 18, verse 2 says, Claudius, Claudius was the Roman emperor at the time, Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. The Roman emperor had forced all the Jews out of Rome, okay? So I'm just going to hit the pause button really quickly because I just want to point something out to you. I do this pretty often when we come to things like this. I just want to point out that the Bible is not a comic book. It's, it's actually a real account. It, it contains real events uh, in named places that involve named people. Okay? We can actually verify historically that this event really did happen, that Claudius did in fact force all the Jews out of Rome because a Roman biographer historian named Suetonius wrote it down. He's not a Christian. He's not a Jew, he's not a friend of Paul, he's just a Roman historian who wrote down, who archived this event. He wrote that in the year 52 AD, quote, since the Jews were continually making disturbances at the instigation of Christus, that's Christ, he, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. I only mention this to say, not because there's any deep like spiritual meaning to it, I'm not gonna like decode this sentence or anything like that. I only mention it to say, that when some people say, oh, the Bible's just made up, there's no evidence to support anything in it, in my experience, they usually don't know what they're talking about. Now, I'm not saying that this proves the whole Bible is true, but I am saying that this is one of thousands of pieces of historical evidence that support the claims of the Bible. The book of Acts is actually, the entire book really is very historically verifiable. Um, largely because it was one of the later books written, so it's not as far back in history. Uh, the Romans did a great job of documenting what was happening at the time in their empire. So Claudius has this attempt to squash the gospel, but he's actually caused the gospel to spread now to Corinth. 
where Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, uh, they spend a few years there and they build this very influential church uh, before moving on to a place called Ephesus. So that was chapter 18. That's what happened. We come to chapter 19 and Paul is in a city called Ephesus. Verse 11, uh, it'll be up on the screen. Verse 11 says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. If you were to read the context of that, you'd see he's healing people of illnesses and diseases, physical ailments. Uh, He's casting out evil spirits. There's like demonic activity. It's a wild scene. Like by our standards, this is a crazy scene. I mean, I don't know if you like cast out any demons this morning. I didn't. Uh, Mike's real, real, like he's really tight with God. So maybe that's your normal. That doesn't happen to me very often. Uh, That's kind of outside of my norm. Now, uh, here's the thing. We live in an age where we don't give a lot of thought to the idea of a spiritual realm. In fact, even just hearing me say the phrase spiritual realm kind of just sounds weird compared to just where we live in normal daily activity. We just don't give a lot of thought of it. Most people in our context are cool with the idea of, yeah, there's probably a God out there somewhere because, well, this all had to come from somewhere, right? Like you don't just get something out of nothing. Like there had to be some original causation for all of this to come in existence. So yeah, sure, there's probably a God. Plus, I know that I'm gonna die someday and I'd really like heaven to be real, so I'm good with God. And for a lot of us, that's about as far as we go in considering just like the reality of spiritual things. When it comes to things like angels and demons and such, I don't know, man. That's a little out there for for most of us. No thanks. Okay. Now, we're not going to do anything crazy. I'm not going to anyway. Maybe you will. I just want to read you what Ephesians 6.12 says. The book of Ephesians, okay, Paul's in Ephesus right now. This is where the church in Ephesus starts. Years later, he wrote a letter to them after he had left. We have that letter. That letter is the book of Ephesians. One of the things he wrote to them, Ephesians 6, 12, it's, he said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. A lot of that is outside of our daily normal, right? Like, I just kind of sort of conjures up like a lot of images of like a spiritual Batman. That's what I, that's what I think, like a lot of dark stuff happening in there. I just want to point out a couple things to you, okay? The first one is, for us as Christians, okay, those of us who have decided we put our faith in Jesus, um, to not believe in the spiritual realm, the idea of good and evil, uh, is to not believe the Bible. Because there are many places, including this one, where it's expressly clear that the spiritual realm is a real thing. It's It's a reality. So I just want to point that out. The second thing is, I just want to say to you, Know your real enemy. Uh, if, it's, if it's reasonable to believe in good, and I, I think we could probably all get on board with that, it's also reasonable to believe in evil. Okay, well, we might not be able to define it, but we all know it when we see it. We all see a horrible tragedy. No one thinks of a school shooting and is like, oh yeah, that's normal. No, it's evil. We, we, we get it. It's wrong. The world shouldn't be that way. We agree on that. What I want to say to you is just know your adversary. It's not your spouse, it's not your coworker, okay? If it's reasonable to believe in good, it's reasonable to believe in, uh, in evil. If you're a Christ follower, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, good, to overcome it. So know your adversary, and don't forget to use the power that you do have. So here's the question we come up against, though. God's doing all these miracles. Why don't we see that happening? 
You ever wonder that? I don't know, are you supposed to ask that out loud? Okay, why don't we see that happening? Why isn't that our normal? Uh, I'd say bear a couple things in mind. One is that you read the, the New Testament and it looks like it's just like every day in every place. There's some like extraordinary miracle happening. But what you have to remember is that the New Testament was written over a span of probably close to 90 years. And it was written in pla about places and events all over the known world at the time. So the fact that it contains a few dozen miracles, you got to bear in mind, they happened over a vast span of time over a vast geographic area. And so it's not like it was all the time, but God does select specific times and places to pour out the power of the Holy Spirit in miraculous ways. Okay, so, so just keep that in mind. But the more important thing is to realize that if there is a power of evil, it contextualizes its um, approach to us. So it, it kind of looks like this. Um, Satan understands that we don't give much thought to spiritual things in our culture, right? Like our needs are met. We have plenty of material distraction to keep us busy. He knows that we're not even thinking about spiritual things. He's going to let sleeping dogs lie, right? Like, wouldn't you? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, think about it this way. If we started seeing like a whole bunch of demonic activity in our culture, we'd all run to Jesus in a hurry. That would change the climate, right? It's also why in other parts of the world where you do see much more spiritual activity, you also see the gospel exploding. People are flocking to the gospel, okay? Your adversary knows that what C.S. Lewis said is true because it wouldn't be right to not have a C.S. Lewis quote. He said that the safest road to hell or the smoothest road to hell is the gradual one. It's the one where you just coast on in there, okay? The adversary is perfectly content to just let us coast in whatever direction we're going. But in Ephesus, compared to us, there's some crazy stuff happening. There's some wild stuff going. I find it fascinating. God is showing himself powerfully through Paul. So one of the scenes that you'll see in there is uh, pretty unfortunate for a handful of people. A uh, crazy situation involving these seven brothers. Uh, the Bible refers to them as the sons of Sceva. Their, their father was the high priest in that region. So these guys see the attention that Paul is getting as God is doing all these miraculous things through Paul. And uh, they decide that they're going to try and do what Paul did. They're just going to take what he did, what he said, and they're going to copy it. They're going to try to invoke the name of Jesus and see if they can perform miracles, heal people, cast out demons, all this crazy stuff. And they find out in a painful way that these demonic forces are no joke. Verse 15, here's what happens. But the evil spirit that they're trying to cast out of a man answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And just to add insult to injury, verse 17 says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. That's tough. That's a tough day, isn't it? That's, that's really rough. Now, they're trying to overpower this force of evil with good. Yeah, I think that's probably the right attitude, but they're trying to do it to gain a following of their own. Here's the problem. This demon says, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but I have no idea who you are. They did exactly what Paul did. They invoked the name and the power of Jesus, but it didn't work for them. Why? Because, get this, they know what to do, but they don't know Jesus. 
Okay, that's like, that's like a word to the wise if, you're, if you consider yourself a Christian. Um, yeah, you know what to do, but if you don't have a relationship with God, that kind of makes you a hypocrite, doesn't it? I mean, I, I probably could have thought of a little softer way to say that. But, you know, sometimes the truth stings a little bit. They know what to do. They know the things to say. They know that, you know, you're supposed to come to church and raise your hands in the songs and, and pray before your meals and whatever, all that stuff. But they don't have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is not their Lord. They're seeking their own gain. That'll preach all by itself, but we're going to move on in the text. Just something to think about. So the forces of evil are hoping to create fear, but what actually happens is that people were freaked out and began turning to Jesus. They saw this crazy spiritual activity happening, and they wanted to get over onto the side of good. Okay, they didn't want to be on the wrong side of this issue. Okay, so verse 20 says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. Pretty wild stuff. Crazy thing to be a part of. Paul hangs around there for quite a while, actually. He's there for a long time teaching people. The church becomes very prominent. Um, Really cool community begins to take shape in there. And then Paul decides, it's time for me to move on. He's going to go back to Jerusalem, which is at this point, and we're only 20 years into the history of the church, so that's kind of still where, like, the headquarters, I guess, of the, the church is. He's going to go back there. The original disciples, they're still alive. They're still in the area. He's going to visit with them, and then he hopes to go on to Rome. Now, just a little tidbit, uh, if you ever decide to read on through the narrative of Acts and through the New Testament, one of the things that is kind of subversive you, you start to figure out is that Paul is actually angling to gain an audience with Caesar, like he just wants to go right to the top with his message. And uh, he does some pretty crazy things like uh, he considers it joy that he's in prison because that's going to get him a trial. And he might be able to appeal his way all the way up to Caesar. Uh, so that's kind of something that he's, he's working toward in the background. But what he does before he leaves Ephesus, he sends out his two ministry partners, sends out Timothy and Erastus. They go on their way. And verse 23 says, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, now, Acts was originally written in Greek, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to have words with Luke, because that's bad grammar. That doesn't translate very well. Most of us would say, about that time, there arose a big disturbance concerning the way. For whatever reason, Luke does it weird. It doesn't translate well. We'll work that out later. Uh, so this disturbance arises. I love the fact that for the first several decades of the church, they, they didn't call themselves Christians. They didn't call themselves the church. They were referred to as the way. It's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. And it totally cuts against the modern idea that Jesus is a way. He's one of the ways to God. Um, Jesus was pretty explicit, and I, it was really expressed, and I appreciate the fact that he was clear in saying, no, I am the way. I am the way to God. The idea of exclusivity, that offends our modern Americanized sensibilities. I I get that. Uh, But I appreciate the fact that he didn't seem worried about offending people. And quite frankly, his followers didn't seem worried about offending people with that either. Uh, And I I think it's curious because in our day, so let's just say uh, I come to Brandy and I say, no, Jesus is the way. And she's offended by that. She's probably going to say something like, whatever. And then the conversation's over, right? Like, that's kind of how it goes in our, in our age. But in their days, you read the narrative, 
people were so offended that they literally would kill people. They would kill Christians for claiming that Jesus was the only way. Uh, it was very common for them to be beaten or arrested, uh, some even worse. But my question is, okay, well, if they knew there was going to be a huge problem if I claim that Jesus is the way, why did they keep doing it? They had an advantage over us, the resurrection. The first generation of Christians, they were there. They saw the resurrected Jesus. I don't think Christianity ever gets off the ground if you, aren't, if you don't have people who are so convinced because they saw the resurrected Jesus. I don't think there's any way it gets off the ground. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to prison for something that's fake. I had to see it with my own eyes to get to that extent. The early Christians were just like, sorry, but I saw the resurrected Jesus, so I'm with him. Sorry if that offends you. It's actually pretty powerful stuff. Okay, so something important happens here in Ephesus. And here's a little piece of background info um, that will be really helpful. And we'll just drill down on this one piece of the text, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world is, is still found there, or the ruins of it are still found there. It's the Temple to Artemis, also known as Diana. Uh, Artemis was, in mythology, the god of wild things, or nature, the animal kingdom, you, you might say. Uh, so it's pretty cool that for them, in a weird way, that they had this amazing wonder of the ancient world, like right there in their city. It would be like us having a pyramid in Spokane or the Great Wall of China being in your hometown. Uh, if you have one of those things in your hometown, that's what your town's known for. And people come from all over the world to see it. So in their case, it's a temple to the goddess Artemis. And so people come from all over the world to worship at this temple. And in the city of Ephesus, they have built a pretty stout industry around it because, you know, some things never change, right? Like somebody's always going to see the opportunity to cash in. And so that's, that's happening here. So, so that's going on in the background. Now watch, watch what happens. It's not going to be on the screen because it's a little bit lengthy. So just, just listen to the narrative, okay? A man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen, okay? So there's a whole guild, um, like a union of idol makers in Ephesus, and people come from all over the world to worship there, and they buy these things from them. So they, they make a ton of money off of it. He gathered up uh, all of these artisans with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. He's saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours might, be, might come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she, she may be even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Uh-oh, the gospel is beginning to threaten the idols of the city. This is, this is a problem. The people are becoming hostile. The people who are profiting from the temple to Artemis, all of a sudden they start to get angry. They start to rally together and they raise up a mob, no joke, and what they do is they drag some of the Christians into the public theater and are about to make a public spectacle of them. Okay, the gospel is 
such a threat to the idols of their culture. Jesus is always going to be a threat to the idols of the culture. But it's so interesting. They were so clearly owned by their idols that when the truth came, they couldn't see it. They were totally offended by it. Kind of like a bad haircut. Just wanted it to be good so bad, but it wasn't. They couldn't even see the truth because their idols had so much power over them. This is how idols work in our lives. Quite often, our devotion to our idols, they seem virtuous. They feel like a virtuous thing. Uh, I'll give you a for instance, okay? I know a couple who have a daughter who used to play softball, and she was really good. Um, she played on our school team, she played on travel team. In the off season, she had a private coach. She was a really good softball player. And every year for about five or six months, uh, the family would basically just totally exit their church community. Uh, we wouldn't see them for months and months because they were traveling up and down the West Coast every single weekend in support of their daughter and her softball career. Now, let me ask you a question. Is supporting your child, like, is that an evil thing to do? We all agree that's like a virtuous thing, right? We all agree you should be supportive of your children, hopefully. If you don't agree, you can talk to Jessica. She's a wonderful mother. Uh, okay. It is a virtuous thing for them to be supportive of their daughter. Is softball inherently like demonic or evil? No. No, it's not. Okay. Here's what went undeniably wrong in this situation, though. When faced with the choice, their decision was to orient their life around their daughter. The problem is, that's a lot of pressure to put on your daughter and her softball career. Their life became wrapped all, all around it. Ouch, I know. But the end result in this story, true story by the way, is that when the daughter's softball career ended, so did the marriage and the family that was oriented around it. This is what happens when we create idols in our lives. Okay? This, is, this is how it works. Here's the troubling part for us, okay? And this is just where I want to just tell you the truth. Jesus will upset the idols in your life. He will. God doesn't, God doesn't want to play second fiddle in your band, okay? Most of the powerful idols in our lives, in my opinion, are just good things that we turn into idols, okay? So what does that mean? Well, I mean what is an idol? An idol is something that we elevate in importance above God above our relationship with Jesus. And the way you identify them is pretty clear. Where do you find your security? Where do you find your worth? That's probably your idol. I would just say, we all have them. That's not like a judgment against anyone. Uh, John Calvin said that we are by nature master craftsmen of idols. Uh, if you're like me, my idols are just like on a lazy Susan, man. They're just going around, just rotating from one minute to the next. We all, we all have them. We're all looking for meaning and value and worth in different places. That's normal. So I'll just throw out a few suggestions. Uh, I mentioned before, like your style or your physical appearance, your career, your position, your title, um, even your family, uh, your dignity or your honor. Uh, your intelligence or education, your skills, your abilities, the things you're good at, your social standing, any of these and an unknowable number of others can all easily become idols in our lives. In a really odd way, we can even make painful things into idols. Uh, you ever been bitter towards someone and you were just so committed to that bitterness that there was no way you were ever going to allow yourself to forgive them? 
We can even make painful experiences the thing we run to. We can make those into idols too. Now the way to deal with idols is sometimes just to get rid of them. If you have addiction in your life, shoot yourself straight and get help. Be honest with yourself. If you have, uh, I'll tell you a big one in our day, pornography. A lot of people just are just sucked in by it and they keep just running back to it constantly. If that's a problem in your life, get help. Don't let the shame of it keep you from saying something. Get help. Sometimes we just need to destroy the idols in our lives, but most of them just need to be put in their rightful place because most of them are good things. Now, I would say that quite often you'll actually get more joy out of those good things if you put them into their right place. Uh, A group of us went through a marriage study this past spring called Vertical Marriage. And the premise is that in order for your marriage to be everything that God has for it, you have to first have your relationship with God straightened out. Have a close relationship with God. Allow Him to sit on the throne of your heart and don't put that kind of pressure on your spouse. See, the, the key isn't to lower your spouse's value. The key is to elevate God's value. It always comes back to the gospel. Don't love your kids less. Don't love your spouse less. Don't love your hobbies less. Don't become less intelligent. Don't stop exercising. Don't love those things less. Love Jesus more. Okay? It always comes back to the gospel. So let me just wrap it up by answering this question that I know you're all wondering. <laughs> How do I do that? How do I love God more? Like, is that just a decision you make? Or like, like how, does, how does that work? Uh, how do I elevate Jesus above these other things that are so important and powerful in my life? Paul sets a really fantastic example of something in these last couple of verses. So you have Demetrius, the silversmith, who incites a mob, and this mob is out for blood. Okay, they want dead Christ followers to solve this problem, and they grab two of Paul's friends, and they drag them into the theater. Verse 28, it says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. That's how big a deal it is. The city is full of confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Okay, so they drag Paul's companions into the theater, not a movie theater. Okay, this is where like uh, their games are held, like gladiator type stuff goes down here. They're not here for karaoke night. They're here to make a spe- spectacle of these people, okay? Paul's friends are in serious trouble. They're powerless to save themselves. Okay, they're, they're subject to the mob and the mob's evil intent in that moment. And verse 30, it says, but when, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. There's a pretty strong possibility that these men will be killed or at least beaten pretty severely, I would say. And when Paul sees the trouble that they're in, he says, I got to get in there. I got to get in there and do something. Now, what's Paul going to do? He sees his friends in trouble. He says, I got to get in there. I got to do something. The disciples restrained him from doing it. But when he saw their trouble, his response was, I have to step in and do something about this. Here's how you love Jesus more. You remember that when God saw you, powerless, about to take a beating from the enemy of your soul, destined for eternity without him, his response was, I got to get in there. I got to get in there and do something about it. He saw you at your worst. The moments that you're most 
embarrassed about or that you would be most ashamed of if other people knew? He saw that and he said, I got to get in there. He didn't say, get away. He said, I, don't, I didn't say, I don't, I don't want you anymore. He said, I got to send my son into the world to live the sinless life that you were powerless to live. And he came and he died on the cross to pay the bill for your sin. And he rose from the dead. He defeated death so that you could have eternal life. And he's given you his presence by his spirit for every moment of the journey to comfort you, to guide you, to strengthen you. See, when you elevate the gospel, everything else finds its rightful place. You don't have to love other things less. You elevate the gospel and other things find their rightful place. When God's on the throne of your heart, it's not restrictive. He's not taking anything away from you. It's actually freeing when God's on the throne of your heart. God saw you in your fragility and your weakness, and he said, I got to get in there. That's powerful stuff. Can you stand with me? Thank you, brother. Let me ask you two questions before we go. The first one is this. When you think about God, what comes into your mind? I think things like, he's vast, he's big, he's powerful, um, powerful enough to create with his words. Maybe you like the softer side. Maybe you like the fact that he's loving, he's gracious. Maybe those are things that you think of when God comes to mind. Maybe something else. Second question though, what comes to God's mind when he thinks about you? You ever ponder that for a few minutes? In Christ, what comes to God's mind when he thinks of you is total, unreserved, unmitigated, unmerited love and grace and mercy. That's what comes to his mind. He loves you with a ferocity that said, I got to get in there. They need me. I got to get in there. When you celebrate that, other things take their rightful place. God, thank you that you see us as we are, you love us as we are, and all you ask is that we turn to you, that we just trust in you. So we thank you that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you that our place in you is secure because your love is unrelenting. So God, I pray that you would help us to walk in confidence, knowing that at the end of all things, I am yours and you are mine. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing with Jesse.